Welcome to the Writer Dojo with your host, Steve Diamond. That's me. And Larry Korea. Hey guys. Today's episode, Business Basics. Red one. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the Writer Dojo. We're super happy to be back with you today. And uh, today, we thought we would start with one of the most important, often overlooked items when it comes to, to starting your, your writing career. And that is the business basics. Yeah, this is a big one. Uh, we often get drafted to be on panels about this topic on cons. This is the not sexy part of writing. Everybody gets hung up on the artistic stuff. This is the stuff that makes it so you can pay your mortgage. Yeah. You know, it's it, it's really interesting. I, I think you and I both both know quite a few authors who apparently didn't get the memo that oh, no. they're supposed to be, you know, like careful and thoughtful with money oh, no, and how they handle it. There are train wrecks. Uh, I would call these guys dumpster fires, but they're more like never ending dumpster phoenixes. Um, <laughs> it just keeps going. I, I, we have some horror stories. We won't share too many names about people we like, but I know, I know authors who basically work for the IRS now uh, because they didn't, they failed to pay their taxes when they were starting out. Uh, we're going to talk about that kind of thing today, getting published we won't go too much into uh, independent versus um, traditional versus hybrid because we'll talk about that more in depth later, the yeah. pros and cons of both of those. But we'll talk about getting your books out there, getting them published, and then when you're making money, how you actually deal with that. Yeah, it, it's really unfortunate. I, I think that the, the biggest error that happens for so many authors is most authors are creatives, right? Yeah, they don't tend to be nuts and bolts business people. Right. It's that old left brain, right brain thing. Yeah, not not every author out there happens to be and happens to have been an accountant in a previous life or in a current life, right? Yeah, me and Steve are a little bit weird in this, and that we come from business backgrounds. We come from number crunchy analytical business backgrounds, and made the jump to creative writing. Uh, whereas a lot of people, they just do the creative writing thing first, and they don't have that business background, and it can really hurt you. Yeah, and it, it's like I don't want I don't want people to think that it's easy. But there are some very basic things. So what I want to talk about first, Larry, is, I mean, this is the absolute most basic item, and that is taxes. <laughs> we might be I, I, say this, I say this facetiously. Well, we might be getting a little ahead of ourselves because, you know, we haven't got to the part where they actually make money yet. But yeah, well, let's go ahead and talk about that. When you are making income, a lot of people, as a writer, you're getting royalty income, you're collecting sales money from your books. A lot of people don't realize that they need to actually pay quarterly taxes on this. Um, you are a business. It's uh, We kind of do a disservice. Most Americans, uh, they just think taxes are this magical thing where you're, it just magically comes out of your paycheck, every single paycheck. And then at the end of the year, you get money back. No, when you're a small business owner, which is what you are as a writer, you have to pay those taxes every quarter to the federal government or they will swallow your soul. You know, I, I remember being on a panel of this of this nature once and this this girl raises her hand and says Steve I I've just been starting to receive money for for the purposes of writing I was like sweet yeah that's that's the goal Good right for you that's awesome giddy up and she said so how do how do I know when I'm supposed to start paying taxes on that money <laughs> and I said like like you you've already received money she said yeah I went so 
did you pay taxes on it? She said, well, well, no, not yet. I said, yeah, that's a problem. Yeah. Like the, the idea is, look, if, if your whole goal is to get paid and sometimes that's a little amount, sometimes it's a big amount, um, just assume and just get in the practice of even when it's a, it's a tiny, tiny short story fee, say, just get in the practice early of cordoning off like, you know, 25 to 33% of that and paying it as taxes. Well, one thing I recommend writers do is as soon as possible, once you have your stuff out there, you need to separate your business expenses from your personal expenses. So go start a bank account that is specifically a business account. Run all your writing business stuff through this one bank account. Don't ever run your writing stuff through your personal account anymore. Everything goes to this separate bank account. That's the simplest and easy way to break your writing business out from your day-to-day rest of your life. If it goes through that bank account, it is related to you writing. That could be office supplies. That could be computer. That could be your computer that you write on. Uh, It's whatever expenses are related to that. And then uh, you have that money separate out of there. And then all um, as money comes in, as you collect checks, you put those into your business account. Don't put those directly in your personal account. And I recommend really talking to a CPA, especially when you're first starting out and you're making a little bit of money. Go talk to a CPA, do a consult. They will help walk you through all the paperwork you need. They'll, call, they'll charge you a couple hundred bucks for this service because they're going to talk to you for an hour. Um, however, take notes and the stuff they tell you is worth its weight in gold and then go forth and apply that. Yeah. And usually what, what I've noticed happens, and this, and this isn't just with writing guys, this is with, with all small businesses. Um, well, we've seen a lot of small businesses crash and burn. Yeah. But you know, there, there's a lot of, when you're in the idea phase and you're starting to get going, a lot of times like stuff starts happening for you in terms of money before you've actually decided to become an official business in terms of incorporation. Uh, I don't remember who I was talking to. Maybe it was, was it you? I don't remember if it was, if it was your CPA, uh, who, who I, I know as well. We, we, we know the same CPA. It seems like I remember them saying as an author, once you were making 15,000 a year, that that was, that was the, around the, the best time to, to actually incorporate yourself as a, as a writer. I'm trying to remember. I don't remember though. I've had this conversation with them and it's going to vary state to state too. And so also we should put a little caveat here that Steve and I are not giving financial advice. <laughs> yeah, they are, uh, are, this is, this is our obligatory. Yeah. We are not your CPAs and yeah. therefore we are not giving you official CPA advice. Legally speaking, neither of us are giving financial advice. This is just some good stuff to think about. These are financial recommendations. Speak to an actual CPA in your Guidelines. State. Uh, but yeah, you, I can't remember. Uh, it's going to depend on your state, what your cutoff is going to be when it's worth uh, forming an actual business entity yeah. uh, separate from yourself. I think I did it um, a long time ago, but I uh, I was a couple years into this. I think I incorporated, I was making a, probably about twenty five thirty thousand 30000 a year yeah. was when I made the jump. And I went ahead at that point, I uh, formed Korea Tech. Uh, Korea Tech Incorporated uh, is actually my S-Corp um, is what I went with. I've heard arguments in favor of doing an LLC or an S-Corp, but that's one of those talk to your CPA. Uh, I went with an S-Corp. Most of us, I think, most writers are S-Corps. Yeah. Um, and then just go through and then very specifically follow the same rules of keeping your expenses separate from your personal. 
and get your tax stuff in order and do your quarterly withholdings. And after you do your quarterly withholdings, then you can take money from that business account and put it into your personal account and spend it to live off of. Make sure the government gets their piece first. Yeah, I, government always gets their part. I mean, what's the what's the joke that you always have? Like the first third of all of your books is written specifically for the IRS? Yeah, basically the first third of every book I write has been for the government, which really sucks. But you know what, though? That means the IRS gets that first act where, you know, stuff's really not, not, not going yet. <laughs> That's not true. We know that. We'll talk about acts later, but uh, you got to start with a bang. But unfortunately, yes, yeah, so the IRS steals from me the first, you know, quarter to a third of everything I write. Uh, and then the state, Utah has uh, pretty crappy state taxes, actually. Our, our state income tax sucks. It's actually pretty high. Yeah, it's pretty high here. Yeah, it's kind of lame. One of the things that that I think a lot of people misunderstand about taxes um, that, that I want to make clear for people, and you alluded to it kind of in the, in the intro, is that, is that it's this magical thing that just happens automatically. And that at the end of the year, if you're lucky... You get some of that money back. I've seen people actually celebrate that. Like they're all excited, like, oh, I'm getting a huge refund. Woo! And like they're they're happy. They're like they they're like thanking the government for their huge refund. It's like, dude, you gave them a a interest free loan for yeah. a year. Yeah, just just so everyone understands the the sheer aversion and hatred that Larry and I have for taxes. <laughs> We're accountants. <laughs> um when you get a tax refund. That's because you paid the government too much of your money. Yeah, you screwed in taxes. up, man. Yeah, you effed up. And so they're saying, "Oh, hey, thanks for that that interest-free loan, right? Here here's your money back. High five. Um see you again next year." That said, as complicated as mine is, and all my income now is from writing stuff, I usually wind up getting a refund at the end of the year because it's not till the end of the year that I can uh put in a lot of my deductions, like my big yeah. charitable contributions for the year. Uh, put money into my IRA, that kind of thing. And uh, so, yeah, unfortunately, and it, it irks me every time because then, you know, a couple months later, it's like, oh, look look at this great money just showed up. It's it's a miracle. No, I know where that came from. That was mine to begin with. And they gave me a small portion of it back because I came up with some good business excuses. If, yeah, if, if you're looking at, if you're, if you're listening to Larry and I rant about how horrible taxes are and how much we hate everything. This is actually a writing podcast. This is a writing podcast, but <laughs> but here here's the point that I wanted to drive, and this is why I kind of drove the, the conversation this way, Larry. And that's you and I. I mean, we've 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 done accounting as a living. We're we're business dudes. We've done this. Yeah. The the average Joe Schmo who is out there um, because he or she is a creative and wants to write a book, they're not going to have. The, the several, I mean, between the two of us, we probably have 40 plus years of accounting experience. Um, Sadly. I know. We're, it, it just means we're old. Yeah. All that means is we're old, Larry. Wow. So. Ouch. We have, we have a, many, many, many years of accounting experience at all different levels that you probably don't, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Listeners out there, you probably don't have that. And that's Okay. The one piece that the one piece of advice that Larry gave that is probably the most sage is, yeah, look, this is all complicated. We get it. Taxes, all that stuff, starting up a business, even I mean, incorporating. It's not a, the incorporation isn't as difficult as it sounds, but it can still it can still drive people crazy. This is what CPAs are for. 
Honestly, you don't have to be an expert. You don't have to be an expert in everything, guys. Well, yeah, to put this in perspective, I took a great deal of pride um, of doing my own taxes because, you know, I'm a, prof- I was a professional accountant while I started my writing career. I took a great deal of pride in doing all my taxes until one year. Uh, I had a very complicated year. I had a, I had a really good lot of writing income. I uh, built a house. I sold a house. Had a bunch of other stuff going on. I got to the end of the year, and I owed a ton of money. And I looked at that and I said, you know what? I just, I can't keep up on the laws. I can't, because the laws change constantly. That's why we're not giving you financial advice. And at that point I was like, you know what? Uh, I'm going to have to swallow my pride and go to an outside expert. So I went to a CPA that we had worked with before, uh, back when I was in business. And I asked them to do my taxes and they saved me probably five times what they charged me. You know, because they know all the current stuff. It's their job to keep up on this. As a creative writer type, your job is to write stories and keep up on your imaginary world. Keeping up on the real world cuts into that. When when Larry and I started this podcast, I, I think you guys remember one of the first things we said in our in our intro uh, episode was, "Look, Larry and I are busy being being creatives, and you know, and then I have I have the the silly day job. Um, this is why we have Jack doing all of our editing." Yeah, Jack yeah. Jack volunteered to help us out, and we could not do this podcast without him because neither one of us has the the bandwidth to go learn that kind of skill set. There's and just no way. And so the same principle applies to tax-type things, right? Absolutely. Like, like, guys, remember, you don't have to be the expert in everything. It's okay to pay someone to be the expert for you, especially when it comes to matters of taxes yeah. and keeping your ass out of jail. Yeah, and and it that is serious, guys. They don't mess around with that. I mean, look at Wesley Snipes. Okay, <laughs> you don't want to be Wesley Snipes or Nicolas Cage or Nicolas Cage. Uh, you know, the guy who doesn't turn down any movie now because he, he probably can't. I really like Nicolas Cage too. Oh, I do too. But but I think what we see the common thread is people are so enamored with getting paid that they forget that along with getting paid, especially in the United States, comes that. That other shoe, which is which is the taxes. Well, let's talk about the getting paid part. We've not talked about that too much sure. yet, and this is something we need to get into. Um, basically, how writers make a living and how we how we make this stuff work. Um, there's two basic schools or methods, great houses, whatever you call them. Um, there's traditional and indie publishing. Yeah, I've been reading Dune. Yeah. <laughs> Can't so, help it. Yeah. Well, the movie's coming out, you know, and we're going to do the role. And I was going to say, and that's our next game. That yeah, I'm I, got, I, got the, I got the rule book, by the way. Nice. But uh, yeah, so there's uh, indie publishing and traditional publishing. Traditional publishing is your old school. Uh, you sell your rights to your book to a publishing house. They publish it and sell it through bookstores. And then they pay you a percentage of the cover price in the form of royalties. So we'll talk about that a little bit. Then there's independent which is huge now, where you just do all that yourself. And that's not necessarily as much distributed in bookstores. Uh, however, you do primarily all your selling online. Um, Amazon is the big one. Amazon really has revolutionized the industry. And we'll talk. We'll have whole episodes about these two different things and how to market in them. Um, but either way, you are selling a product and getting a percentage of the cover price in royalties. Uh, I believe if you're doing it independent, you're getting a check every month which is kind of like a like a regular paycheck, which is pretty cool. If you're doing it traditional uh, through a big publishing house, you'll get an advance up front. We'll talk about advances a little bit uh, later. And then you also get royalties, but you do not collect any royalties until the advance earns out. Then you get royalties, depending on your publishing house, every three months to six months. 
um, which is a little weird because you got to budget now for a quarter or half a year. Yeah. Which is really weird for a lot of people. All right. So let's take a break really quick, Larry. And then when we come back, let's go ahead and get to the nuts and bolts of contracts and, and kind of go really specific in terms of like royalties and advances and, and all that jazz. That's a good idea, Steve. And helping people understand the mindset of only getting paid twice a year. Okay. All right. The Chaos Goddess Saga has been quiet since the destruction of the City of Monsters. But Monster Hunter International knows he is still out there somewhere, plotting, waiting for his chance to unravel reality. When Owen Pitt and the MHI team discover that one of Isaac Newton's wardstones is being auctioned off, they decide to steal the magical super weapon and use it to destroy Asag once and for all. But before the stone can be handed off, it is stolen by a mysterious thief with ties to MHI and the Vatican's secret guard. It's raced against time, the secret guard, a spectral bounty hunter, and a whole bunch of monsters to acquire the wardstone and use it against Asag. For as dangerous as the Chaos God is, there is something much older and infinitely more evil, awakening deep in the jungles of South America. Book number eight in the critically acclaimed Monster Hunter International series by New York Times bestselling author Larry Correa, Monster Hunter Bloodlines is available on Amazon or wherever books are sold. All right, everyone. Welcome back. Larry and I have been talking to you all about the kind of the business basics. Um, and for the first half of the episode, uh, as Larry and I want to do, we, we, we tend to rant about things that we dislike. And that turned into taxes. Now, that's okay. That's super important. And just remember, taxation is theft and it's evil. So, um, but where we left off was really talking about kind of the nuts and bolts of contracts. Now, this is the, this is the part that I think so many authors, writers, whatever you want to call it, that this is where this is their first taste of success is when they actually get a contract and they sign it. Yeah. Now, word of caution on contracts. There, there's um, The publishing industry is like any other industry. There's sharks in it. Um, there's a lot of really aggressive contracts out there, a lot of different size publishing houses. Some are more honest than others. Some of the big publishing houses uh, will pay you pretty good up front, but they tend to be kind of notorious for how they treat their writers like crap mm-hmm. if you don't immediately rise to the top and start making piles of money. Other publishing houses have reputations where they're a little more patient and give you time to develop as an author and develop your business. Either way, you're going to have a contract. And your contract's going to specify how you get paid, uh, the manner of everything in there, what you need to deliver, what times you need to deliver it, size. Uh, it'll have all the parameters in there for everything from how your book's going to be distributed to how you're going to negotiate uh disagreements, you know, arbitration, that kind of thing. And so very important, guys, when you get offered a contract, read that contract carefully. Uh, If you are not comfortable doing this yourself, don't be ashamed of roping in somebody who knows what they're doing and having them look at it uh, also. I've been asked a lot over the years by, you know, friends and neighbors that have gotten their first publishing contracts where they've come and asked me to read their contract. And there's been some that I've read it and I was like, I would not sign this piece of crap. This is awful. Yeah, and, and once again, everyone, just, just like how Larry and I talked about our 
umpteen gajillion years of accounting experience together. We also both worked in the government contracting realms. We were contract accountants. Yeah. We were contract accountants, <laughs> and we were reading over government contracts pretty much on a daily, weekly basis. Yeah, and they're horrible. And they're terrible. But I've so seen stuff from publishing houses that are even worse. Oh, right. And so as bad as you can imagine a government contract being in, t- in terms of just pure idiocy or in legalese or obfuscating the truth or, or what have you, um, don't just assume that because you got this this cool publishing contract and maybe you happen to be buddies with the person who owns that company or acquaintances with that person, that it's going to be super friendly to you. Um, one of the first things that I always look at, Larry, is how are my royalties being given to me? So is, is the royalty that I'm getting, is it being generated off gross cover price or is it off your net profit? Yeah, no, that's that's one where people can get really sneaky. And I've seen some small publishing houses get pretty shysty on that. And it's kind of like the joke about, you know, Hollywood. Always get mm-hmm. your money up front with Hollywood because Hollywood accounting is legendary for making it look like the you know you get your money on the background and then nothing ever makes profit because they're really good at spreading that money around. And the publishing houses will do the same thing. Not not really the bigger, more well-known ones because they have, you know, they've been around too long. They're legit businesses. But some of the little uh, smaller publishers, I've seen stuff where it's like, well, we get you, uh, you know, we'll give you a percentage off the back end after we pay all our expenses. Except they arrange their expenses in a manner that, you know, they are getting paid before you. Uh, they'll have like the marketing company just happens to be owned by the guy's wife. We've seen that happen before. Oh, uh, we have to pay the uh, art director. Oh, yeah, I'm the art director. Uh, <laughs> you know, so on and so forth. And so you get scraps. Now, industry standard is going to be a percentage of cover price. Usually uh, on paperbacks, it's 8%, um, I believe. I think that's standards. Um, you know, I'm trying to think back to some of our contracts there. I think it varies. Yeah, I think in, in general, you know, you get a lower percentage for the first X amount of copies sold. Oh, yeah. And then it'll jump after you've done this many copies, it'll jump yeah. to another percentage. You know, 25, 50,000, something like that. Then yeah. they, they typically jump it up a couple percentage well, points. Something that most people aren't going to hit on a mid list book anyway. No. Uh, Hardcovers will usually pay you like 20%, 25%, I think it's 20%. Yeah, again, it just which depends. is nice because you know the, you know they're selling them for more expensive. Mm-hmm. But also, there will be stuff in your contract about like discount bulk sales, mm-hmm. uh, that Returns. kind of thing. Because you know, like uh, certain online deals will will bump that down or up. Uh, ebooks are huge. Uh, ebook is because all ebooks are almost always going to be sold for a fixed rate, a fixed mm-hmm. amount, and uh, whatever the percentage is on that, you negotiate with your publisher. I think it's like you know twenty five, thirty percent is awesome. Um, Whereas if you're doing independent publishing where there is no middleman, it's just you, I believe those guys, if they follow the Amazon pricing, uh, things like 70%. I think it's 70 or 75% now. Which is really nice until you realize that you're your entire marketing department. So good luck with that. We'll talk a whole other episode about that. You know, my, my favorite accounting joke, Larry, because we're accountants, is it's the guy that, that goes into his job interview and, and the only question that the, that the prospective accountant has asked is, well, what's one plus one? And all of the all of the other people are like, oh, it's two, it's two, it's two. And then one guy, he gets asked the question. He kind of looks around, goes and you know shuts the drapes, and he says, "Well, what do you want it to be?" <laughs> and so th- this one of is the, the jokes in accounting, you know. It, but it's still the best one. Yeah. Um, and that and that, I, I say that to illustrate the point of Larry just illustrated all of the the super concrete 
details when it comes to getting stuff that's gross, you know, off gross. When we say gross, we mean cover price. It is, it is just your, your unadjusted number. However, again, when we talk about net and why we talk about why it's in, in most cases, it's, you shouldn't even be touching it. That's because for the accountants at these places, one plus one is whatever they want it to be when it comes to their expenses. So unless they're going to give you uh, very specific details as to exactly what is included in their expenses so that you know you can, you can hone in on exactly what your, your net uh, royalty is going to be, um, kind of uh, my advice is to be very, just to be very hesitant about, about those sorts of deals. Big time. Other stuff to watch out for also in your contracts, it'll be spelled out what's called ancillary rights. Mm -hmm. Ancillary rights are all the things, like normally when we sell a contract for a book, it's for producing this worldwide in the English language uh, for that particular publishing house. What about other languages? What about film, which is called dramatic rights or uh, audio, audio book rights. Audio book is huge. Audio books like, you know, like a third of my income or a quarter of my income. Audio book is great. Um, so this is all going to be spelled out in your contract, what you're getting for everything. And also, sometimes you're not giving this stuff away. Um, sometimes if you're signing, especially if you're selling with a smaller publisher, you're only signing away the English rights, and that's it. And then you keep that other stuff, and then you try to develop that yourself. Yep. I guess that, that does kind of segue us into agents, too. Yeah. So agents are, man, agents are a sticky issue for a lot of people. Well, because I am unagented. As am I. Yeah. Um, Okay, so for those of you guys that don't know what an agent is, uh, this is this is a thing that used to be a lot more common in publishing. Uh, agents are people who represent you. You ever hear like you know you're watching TV and uh, a Hollywood show about Hollywood is like, oh, I got a call from my agent. He's got a gig. Basically, agents are people that go out and they represent you as their client, and their goal is to get business for you. However, in the writing world, in exchange for that, agents get fifteen percent of everything you make which is a lot of money. Now, 15% is a big chunk of your income. So the only reason to have an agent is if they bring you more than that value 15%. That 15%, exactly. Right. I myself uh, am not agented. I just have done everything on my own. I'm also not scared of contracts uh, or but, any of the business stuff. Again, again, you and I, we, we, we've we seen a lot of contracts in our days. We're kind of anomalous on that. I, I know a lot of friends that are agented and they love their agents. I know other yeah. people who've had agents as, uh, had agents and fired them. Um, I've known agents that struck me as good, decent people working hard for their writers. And I've seen other agents that struck me as total shyster pieces of garbage. They're one step above, you know, used car salesmen. And that's insulting the used car salesman, really. Because these guys were just like milking their authors. I know of one agent... Oh, I want to name her because she's so horrible. <laughs> but like she was straight up because she decided she wanted to write, launch her writing career. So she would go pitch projects belonging to her authors. But then she would undersell her authors by pitching her own stuff and sell herself before she sold her clients. So she would get her clients bumped from things yeah. so she could take In it. her own favor. And that, yeah. I mean, that's such a that's massive, trash. massive conflict of interest to be even doing that. Well, it used to be that people thought you had to have an agent. I, yeah. I disagree. A lot of people are still caught in that old mindset. And what it is, really, agents serve as a first layer of defense for publishing houses, for traditional publishing houses, for really crappy writers. They screen out the bad, and that way they have a relationship with the publishing house, theoretically. So they go direct to the publisher, 
who they have a relationship with, and they say, I got this thing. You're really going to like it. You should buy it. So you skip over the slush pile, and you go right to the decision makers. Theoretically, that's how they're supposed to work, which will make you a lot more money. They're supposed to negotiate better deals for you. They're supposed to sell all those ancillary rights for you in foreign languages and whatnot. Do they actually do that? Who knows? Sometimes, you I know, think some I, do. They're, well, in, in, in your, your ideal situation, if you get an agent, is that agent that doesn't just have contacts at one publisher. It has contacts at all the different publishers. Yeah, they're going to know who to go to lunch with and schmooze mm-hmm. and, and go direct. Um, I, there, there's, a, there's an author I know, um, you know as well, uh, Brian McClellan. Yeah. Great guy. Um, great, great stuff. And, and I remember when he first got... Uh, he first got his agent for for his Powder Mage series. His agent went out and was like, "Blah," and just went out to everyone. Yeah, good. And and it and and from what I recall, and and I might be, and I'm not going to say any numbers or anything, but um, there were a lot of people who were interested in his series. See, that's awesome. And so, just like anything, think of it in terms of a bidding war. Like your your ideal situation is everybody fighting over the privilege of you. Yeah, I, I have a funny story about that. Uh, so when I first started out, before I self published, I I submitted to all the agents mm-hmm. just like I thought you were supposed to, and I I submitted to all the publishing houses directly. I did everything. I got rejected a hundred times, uh, literally a hundred times. I had a shoebox full of rejections, <clears throat> and uh, I remember a couple years later. I've blown up huge. Uh, Monster Hunter's killing it. That series is doing awesome. I'm, it's a bestseller. I go to this event, some con. It was uh, it World was World F- Fantasy, World Fantasy in you, 2011. Yeah, San Diego. Yeah, we crashed that one. Yeah, 2011, we crashed that. And so I remember we were at a party, a room party, and this one famous, like really well-known agent comes up. He's a good agent. Yeah, he's got a really good rep, uh, but I'm going to make fun of him on this one. And he comes up to me and he goes, wow, Larry Korea, nice to meet you. Oh, my gosh. Wow, you just came out of nowhere. I mean, you just blew up huge. Who's your agent? I go, I don't have one. He goes, really? You don't have an agent? Well, we should talk. I was like, well, you know, I submitted to you guys and you rejected it. Oh, well. (laughs) (laughs) And then I just went on. I just went on with the party doing my thing. Uh, you know, so don't, don't take it wrong. Just because you get rejected doesn't necessarily mean anything. We've talk, we'll talk about rejection a lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll have a – at some point we're going to have a whole episode about dealing with rejection. I wish I would have saved some of my old ones I got rejected on, but I, I blew them up. I literally took the shoebox and I – when we moved and I blew it up. I put it a, a jug of Tannerite under it and under the shoebox and just blew it to smithereens. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't have those to read anymore. Sorry. <laughs> we could have read them on air. So what I'm gathering from all this, Larry, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, is just like anything, just like anything in this whole writing world, is there's not just one way. You can, you can go, you can get an agent, and you, can, and you can get published. You can go indie. You can go traditional. You can kind of mix and merge the two, although I think that that's easier once you're established in one of the venues. Yeah. Um, contracts. Can can come in all different shapes and sizes. My, I, I think both mine and your biggest recommendation when it comes to contracts is, man, read those things a couple dozen times before you 
you sign. Well, across the board, any of the business-related stuff is do your homework. There's a lot of resources out there available. There's a lot of people who have done this who are willing to give you advice and willing to help you. Don't get ahead of yourself and blunder into something that you're not willing to do. We didn't mention right over first refusal. Oh, gosh. That's a huge one. So right of first refusal is a thing where you sell something to a uh, publisher. The publisher says, well, from now on, you submit all your stuff to us first, and we get to look at it first and decide whether we want it or not. And that's fine. Well, for ex- I mean, for example, except for example, for the on the good side, you and I, in our, um, for our, our, I keep wanting to call it by the old title, by Grunt's Eye View, yeah, uh, Servants Ravens. of War. Yeah. So our contract specifically states that Bain has the right of first refusal for anything in that world. Yeah. As far as Which novels go. Which makes total sense. And that makes total sense. Marketing and business perspective. However, you and I both know of a, of a couple individuals that have done some right of first refusals where it was, it was carte blanche. It was evil. They I, could I do saw... anything they wanted and they could take as long as they wanted and then they could, I don't know, take your firstborn. The worst I ever saw, which was just downright evil, was right over first refusal was basically if they didn't buy it, they forbid him from selling anything that could be considered competition. Yeah. Like if it was similar, it could be considered competition for that book, which means if they didn't buy it, he couldn't sell anything to anyone else. And all they'd have to do is, well, well, it's science fiction, so it's close. It's competition, which is stupid in every way, but that's the nature of some of these contracts. Yeah, you have to be really, really careful out there. There are the people out there that, that want you to pay them to publish your book, which is completely oh, backwards. That's another one, too. Any agent that says you have to pay them, run. It's a scam. Yeah. Scam. Automatic, it's a scam. Same thing with like little vanity publishing houses. Um, basically, guys, the money flows to the author. That's how yeah. it works. If you get an agent, uh, the money's going to flow to you, but they're going to take a cut of that. That's what they do. But if the agent's like, well, I'll represent you, but you got to give me 5000 bucks up front. No. no, run away. No, if, if you're going to pay money, guys, then you might as well be self-published. Oh, because yeah, if you're going to spend the money, just do it yourself. Then do it yourself. Spend on the marketing, spend on covers, well, especially spend on editing. if you drop editing. five grand on marketing, that's a pretty good chunk of change that's for a first book. That's a huge amount to, of money. To, you know, you, can, I mean, you can put together a pretty good product for that. That's bigger than most people's first book advances. Oh, yeah, we didn't talk about advanced size much, but oh, we're, we're at 30 minutes, though. You know what? <laughs> give us, guys, be patient. Give us give us like four more minutes. Okay, so advances. Four more minutes. Real fast. Last thing we'll talk about. Advances. Guys, a lot of people have this Hollywood idea that advances are millions of dollars. That is not the case. Not unless your name's Stephen King. No, and we talked about that a little bit in, our, in one of our episodes where we, we mentioned, you know, he can do whatever he wants, gets millions of dollars. No, really, most books, when you're a nobody that nobody's ever heard of, your advances is a few thousand dollars, yeah. uh, you know, $5,000, yeah. $10,000. A good advance would be like twenty five, fifty thousand. I know some guys for the first books got fifty, but that's even that's rare. Um I do know a couple guys who've gotten in the six figures, but that's usually a real serious anomaly. You Um, know, in general, guys, advances, think of it as a measure of, or a a measurement of the risk that a publisher is willing to take on you as an unproven person. Right. And the pro of a big advance means that they are willing to, they've demonstrated that they're investing in you, which is good. The disadvantage of a big advance is when you're a new guy, that's a lot harder to earn out. And when I say earn out, remember, you do not collect royalties until you've sold enough copies to make up for that advance. Yeah. Just in terms of basic math, guys, pretend your advance is 1000 bucks, and pretend your royalty 
is a dollar for every book that you sell, do the math. That's, you got to sell a thousand books just to break even for Before the publisher. You see another dime, and you will not see another dime until then. And some of the big publishing houses are pretty awful about this. They'll give a guy a twenty thousand dollar advance, then they'll give him no marketing whatsoever. Yep. His books will go out and no one's heard of them. No one's ever heard of this guy before. The books will do eh. And then, but on their books, on their accounting books, this guy's a loser. Yeah. He didn't earn out his advance. Yeah, he's in the red for a long time. And and there are quite a few publishers that take this even a step further. And they'll they'll buy your entire series from you. They'll buy a trilogy from yeah, you. Yeah, right? that was when I was a new one. I saw that a couple years ago for yeah, the, the first time. the whole basket accounting thing. Yeah, we're thinking it's probably the same guy, too, yeah. where he got a three-book deal and it was a good size advance. I think yeah. he got a six-figure advance. Um, however, he does not collect royalties until the third book was out. Well, and until all th- until royalties had eclipsed his advance for all three books, I mean, it, it was insane. Yeah, so this guy is like six years in before he sees a dime after his advance. You know, and and look, publishers, they're hoping they're hoping to throw stuff against the wall, and they're hoping that, that some Amazon or Netflix or someone's going to come and, and give you a movie deal. They're hoping that you're going to knock it out of the park and become the next whoever the next lightning, lightning in a bottle author is. Yeah. But the reality is most authors, like 99% of authors, go out there, and it's tough sledding for them from start to finish. And so... Every time you get your advance, you you look at it and you go, okay, I want to earn this out. I need to earn this out. Now, some people are fortunate um, and they have great publishers, like 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 you know ourselves, Larry. Yeah, we yeah. have great publishers that I've, I've that earned actually out almost every advance I've ever gotten in the first royalty period. Yeah, um, and, and my that's advances great. now are pretty good uh, because. I have a proven track record. They know approximately what I will sell. They know how big my fan base is. So my advances now are rather good. Yeah, your your advances are increasing proportionally to the sales that you generate. But when I started out, my advances were tiny. Yeah. But on the bright side of that, it makes you look really good when you earn out your advance the week the book comes out. <laughs> it makes you look awesome. So, you know, look on the bright side if you get the small one. All right. So, everyone, thank you for your patience on this one. Larry and I kind of... As, as we do. We tend to ramble a little bit, chat, do the normal stuff, because that's who we are. Because taxation is theft. Because taxation is theft. Um, so thank you all for listening to us. And again, think about it this way, guys. And always remember this. There's a whole bunch of different ways to do everything. There's no one gospel rule except pay those taxes. Pay that theft tax. Because uh, if you don't, the IRS will come and murder you. So with that, thank you everyone uh, for joining us on another episode of the Writer Dojo, and we'll see you all next time. Writer Dojo is Steve Diamond and Larry Correa, produced by Jack Wilder and Baron Hair Studios. Theme song, Word Mercenaries, by Craig Nivo. New episodes come out every Wednesday, wherever you stream your content. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can help support us by going to anchor.fm slash writer dojo by leaving us a five-star rating or review and by helping to spread the word all questions and comments can be emailed to questions at writerdojo.com because taxation is theft because taxation is theft <laughs>